Jones, the Stanleys, Josh and Alyssa, uh, the Longeways, Tom and Dee Dee, and the Hermans were also there, Dave and Kim, helping us chaperone the high school retreat. And four lessons over the weekend all about what it means to worship God so that these students might worship him with their lives, so that they might give him all that they are. And it was a, a blessed time, definitely, to see the Lord work in their lives and to see their hearts for the Lord. And I want to talk to us tonight about worship. So if you would take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is where we will be this evening. And I'm going to start reading in John 4, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know that, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, Am he. Let's commit our time in the word uh, here as we, in prayer. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father, we bow before your throne this evening, recognizing you as the great God of all grace, of all mercy, of all holiness. Pierce our hearts this night, I pray. I pray that your spirit would work among, among us and that we would desire above all else to see your glory and your greatness. I pray that this would be a time when we see the cross of Christ as well and his sacrifice for us. I pray that my words might be your words and my thoughts might be your thoughts and that you might increase in this place. In your name I pray, amen. I thought I'd start off with an easy question for us tonight. Just kind of a lob thrown out there for you to hopefully knock out of the park. Very easy question to start off with. Simple, here it is. What is the meaning of life? Don't answer all at once, don't answer all at once. What is the meaning of life? Over the ages, many people have tried to answer this question. Why are we here on this earth? What is the purpose of everything? Why do we roughly have 80 years or so, if we're lucky sometimes, to live? What's the point of everything? One TV show I was watching recently was wrestling with this question. What's the point of life? What's the meaning of life? And they came up with answers like, We are here on earth because heaven is full. 
Another answer that was given, we are here to love other people. Other people might say we are here to enjoy ourselves. You might find people who say the whole meaning of life is to search for the meaning of life. That doesn't confuse you or at least leave you hopeless. I don't know what will. And if you have ever seen perhaps celebrities interviewed on TV, you know one of the popular answers is the point of everything is just to give something back to the world, to give something back to the earth, to just make a difference. They think that if they spend their money, give their money to a charity, if they spend their hours volunteering, if they put their money and effort into saving the dolphins or getting somebody elected into office, that that will make all of the difference in the world and so give meaning to their life. So I ask you, what is the meaning of life? Before we answer this question, I want to paint us a picture here a little bit. I grew up in the state of Washington, and I went to college in the state of California. So I am a West Coaster. I love the West Coast. And one thing I love about the West Coast is the water. There's nothing like sitting on the beach on the West Coast with the sunset, the sun going down in the West, reflecting off of the water, the clouds burning with colors of red, orange, yellow, pink, purple. I'm sure that you can call to mind maybe a similar scene, perhaps, perhaps something in your life that has dazzled you by its beauty and magnificence. Isn't it interesting that we as people have been given the ability to recognize beauty? What makes something beautiful? Is it the colors? Is it the landscape? Perhaps with other people they say what makes someone beautiful is the symmetry of their face. We are able to see beauty and appreciate something that is beautiful. What is the most beautiful thing? What is the most beautiful thing? The most beautiful thing is not a thing at all. It's a person. All other beauty we recognize points to the beauty of this person. This person is the sculptor of man. He is the painter of the universe. He is the mover of mountains. He is the gardener of all landscapes. He is the conductor of all music. He is the forecaster of all weather. He is the controller of all things. He is the sustainer. He is the breath of life. He is the knitter of souls. He is merciful to the merciless. He loves the loveless. He is graceful to those who are undeserving. He is the rescuer from destruction. He is the perfection of perfection. He is everywhere. He is holy, holy, holy. He is God. He is the most beautiful and all other things only point to his ultimate beauty. Everything else pales in comparison to his glory. And so we come back to our question, what is the meaning of life? In the Westminster Catechism, a work of theology, 
It's based on a series of questions and answers so that one may learn the doctrines of the Christian life. The first question it asks is, what is the chief end of man? If we were to put that into colloquial terms, we would say, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? What's the point of everything? Why am I here? And what answer does the catechism give to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? If you read John Piper, he says it this way, to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. The point of life is to worship the beautiful one. Worship is life and life is worship. What is worship? Worship comes from an old English term called worthship. The whole idea behind this word is to ascribe worth to something. To say this is the most valuable thing. But it isn't just saying that it is valuable. It's also distinguishing it as precious. You're not making it valuable by recognizing it. You're just simply doing just that, recognizing it. You praise something because it is worthy of praise. It's worthy of honor. It's worthy of glory. You worship something because of its value and greatness. Whether you realize it or not, you are a worshiper. You have worshipped today. And it's easy for us to think, yeah, of course, I've worshipped today. I've gone to church already, right? There has been something that you ascribed value to today. Or this past week. Something that you thought was worthy of praise, of value. What was it? What was it? The fact is, everyone is a worshiper of something. It's built into our nature. We are by nature worshipers. We are born to worship, and God has created us as beings who worship. Often the problem is we worship the wrong things. When we worship the wrong things, we worship idols, right? That's what we call it, idolatry. And what is at stake is the difference between being a worshiper of idols and a worshiper of God. It's the difference between being an adulterer and being one who gives their complete affection and allegiance to God. Have you ever thought about that? Idolatry is adultery. Idolatry is adultery. I know from my life, there's no, nothing worse that I could think about than cheating on my wife. And we look at people that do that with disdain. And, it, and it's sin, right? Do we have that same view in our life when we worship things other than God, when we cheat on God? When we worship idols, we attribute worth to something that is of no worth. Romans 1, 20 through 25 tells us just this point. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. Amen. The meaning of life is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. If it is to worship him, him, then it's to worship him alone. And we must worship him to the best of our abilities. We must live out the meaning of life. I want to give us just a definition here of worship, something that we can hang our hats on, simple, concise. It's a definition given by Warren Wearsby. It's this, worship is the believer's response of all that they are, mind, emotions, will, and body, to what God is and says and does. Worship is the believer's response of all that they are, mind, emotions, will, and body, to what God is and says and does. And we must understand then what true worship is We must, worse, we must realize the danger out there that we can be engaging in false worship. You can be worshiping idols. And we want to understand true worship, authentic worship. And to many people in our world today, they're looking for meaning. They're looking for purpose. And the principles that we're going to talk about from John 4 they're not difficult to understand. In fact, they're very basic in their meaning. Yet it's these basic building blocks that must be in line for us to truly worship. And we must apply these to our life so that our focus and our affection will remain on God. And then you will not need to search for meaning. You will not have to look for purpose. Before we dive into our five points of, of true worship, let's get a picture here of the setting in John 4. Something's going on. We kind of jumped in in the middle of, of this event. Jesus is traveling to Galilee, and the setting is very simple. He's been traveling for a while. It's hot, so he stops for a drink. There's a well. And there's a Samaritan woman, and there's him. And Christ traveling through this region known as Samaria is something that would rarely happen. Jews did not go into the region of Samaria. Jews considered the people of Samaria as unclean, poisonous, and as a traitorous people. Samaritans came into being during the time of the deportation Land of Israel was taken by the Assyrians. The Assyrians decided to replace the people that they took out with foreigners into the land. And these foreigners intermarried with the Israelites that were left behind. And so they were considered a mixed people group. And if we read in 2 Kings 17, 25 through 41, we see that 
these people did not recognize God. They did not honor God. And so God sent lions in and started eating them and devouring them. And the people were afraid. And they said, what are we going to do? Because these lions are eating and devouring us. And so they said, well, we'll bring in a Jewish priest. He'll teach us the ways of Yahweh. And that's what happened. Jewish priest comes in, teaches them the way of Yahweh. And accept, instead of accepting Yahweh alone, these people decide, well, we'll take this God, Yahweh, and we'll fear him a little bit, and we'll also have our own idols that we brought with us. And so they try to incorporate these two together, Yahweh and their idols. And this was a religion where they only believed the first five books of the Bible. Those are the only ones that they accepted as authoritative. It was a religion where Mount Gerizim was the mountain that they worshipped on. They didn't worship on Mount Zion in Jerusalem at the temple. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. But I find it interesting. Jesus stops in the midst of these people. And he shares with them the meaning of life. He shares with this woman the meaning of life, his compassion his outstretched arm to her. He teaches her about worship. He teaches us about worship. And so what does he teach? Five points of true worship. Number one, true worship is centered on God. True worship is centered on God. If we look in our verses there, verse 23, true worshipers will worship the Father. True worshipers will worship the Father. God is the object of our worship. And Jesus makes it clear here that God is the one who is getting the worship. He is the focal point. Worshiping is for God. Then the meaning of life is not centered on man, but it's centered on God. We can't worship God and think what we are going to get out of it. That's not the point of worship. He is the only one worthy of of our praise and our lives. Our worship to God, our worship of God, is pleasing to God only when we have a high view of God. So what's going to shape our high view of God, our great view of God, if you will? Well, it starts with a correct knowledge. We need to have a correct knowledge of God. We must know who He truly is. Jesus told the woman she worshipped what she did not know. She didn't have a correct knowledge. The Samaritans didn't have a correct knowledge of God. And not having a correct knowledge of God meant that their worship was false. Meant that their worship was idolatrous. It demonstrated that they were an idolatrous people and an adulterous people, just like the woman at the well. Think about that before. Jesus talks about, call your husband and have him come here. And she says, I have no husband. I've had five husbands. And, 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 or, or Christ says that to her. You, you don't have a husband right now. You've had five. And the one that you live with right now isn't really your husband. And so she is not only idolatrous, but she is adulterous. The state of the people of, of Samaria. They didn't have a correct knowledge of God. It's important that we know who we worship. It's not just to know... It's not just enough to know about God. 
Other people can know about God. It's knowing him personally. It's having a relationship with him. And what's amazing is that this relationship is not us initiated. It's God initiated. He initiated the relationship with us. How did he, how did he initiate the relationship? He sent his son into the world. John 1.1 1, 1, and following and in this knowledge of God, there must be a unity between the knower and the object known. We, we become unified with God when we have a correct knowledge of God. Acts 17, 22 through 25 gives us an interesting event of Paul going to Areopagus. And he says to the men of Areopagus, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. A correct knowledge is a full knowledge. Worship must incorporate all that is true about God. You cannot simply recognize his love and never have anything to do with his justice. You must understand all that he is. You must point out that we are utterly unlike him, that he is far above us, that he is perfect, that he is holy, that he is transcendent yet imminent. And we don't put God at the center. We must realize he is the center. And also understand that he has made us able to respond to him as the center so if we're going to have a high view, we must have a correct knowledge. We also must know God's character. If our worship is centered on God, we better know who He is. And we can't see God because He is invisible, but we can know who He is through His Word. We can see His attributes through His Word. We can understand that He is just, that He is gracious, that He is merciful, sovereign, loving, Faithful, eternal, omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent, self-sufficient, jealous, patient, immutable, holy, and true. True worship incorporates all that God is. How can we rightly respond to God when we do not know who he is? When was the last time you thought about God's jealousy? When was the last time you thought about God's omnipresence? When was the last time you thought about God's wrath? When was the last time you thought about God's self-existence or self-sufficiency? That He doesn't need anybody, He doesn't need anything to exist we often think of God's love and faithfulness and grace and mercy, and rightly so. But let's not forget about the rest. Let's worship God for all that he is. 
high view of God also understands God's actions, that God is a God that works. If we know that he is a God who is in control of all things, then we're going to worship him in accordance with that. When we know the greatness of his works, we will respond to that greatness. The problem is, though, we don't know truly what's great. If we knew what is truly great, we would use the word sparingly. The word greatness is thrown all around today. Just watch any sporting event, and you'll hear the sportcasters use the word great many, many times. When we associate greatness with people like Michael Jordan and Wayne Gretzky, we have truly lowered the standard of greatness. Knowing how God works and the purpose of God's actions demonstrate how truly awesome He is. And it pushes us to worship Him. Psalm 8, 3 and 4. When I look at your, at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? True worship happens is when, when, when God is the center. The problem is, the struggle is self-centeredness. I want to be at the center I want to be the one that everything revolves around. I want to be the one that gets all of the attention. I want to be the one recognized. We need to be put in our rightful place before God. Secondly, true worship, authentic worship, is centered on Christ. Our verses here, verse 23 but the hour is coming and is now here. The time to worship the Father in spirit and truth was now because Christ was there. It was a present reality. The Samaritan woman didn't have to wait to worship God. She could worship Him because Christ was there. It was through Him that worship was to happen. And true worship can only happen through Christ. He must be at the center of our worship to God. But why? Why must Christ be at the center? A few thoughts about this. First, Christ is our mediator. It's through Christ that we are brought to God. 1 Timothy 2, 3-6. through six. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, our Savior, who, deserve, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Christ's saving work on the cross makes it possible for us who were once enemies with God to be brought to God, to be made a part of his family, to be adopted He gives meaning to our worship. He gives us life. He is the water that springs towards eternal life. And he is the only way to God. Christ is also the truth. Jesus Christ has revealed God to us. He has given us the truth about God. As the incarnation, he has shown God to us in the flesh. 
two verses in John 1, John, 14, John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1, 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Christ has exegeted, explained, revealed God to us. And God's glory, which displays his endless worth, is bound up in the Son. If you want to see the glory of God, you have to see it through the Son. To worship God in truth means to worship Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through Him. Christ's work is the motivator for our worship. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes do you need motivation to get up in the morning, maybe? Motivation to go out and do something? For me, yard work usually requires some motivation. Christ's work is the motivation for our worship. It's what inspires us to worship. It's what pushes us to fall on our knees before the living God. He is our motivation. And the gospel stirs us up to worship God. The work of Christ on the cross must motivate us. Because we understand what he did for us. It's through his death and burial and resurrection and ascension we have been forgiven of our sins, released from the bondage of sin and death and have been given new life, eternal life. We have been given Christ who is all satisfying and he is our joy. The gospel is God's work for us. And this message of good news reaches our hearts and transforms us and moves us to respond to God with all that we are each and every day. It's the gospel that leads us to worship. The gospel must be a part of our life each and every day. And Jerry Bridges in a few of his books tells his readers to preach the gospel to yourself each and every day. Do we remember the gospel? Do we remember the, cro- the cross? Do we remember the resurrection of Christ? It's his work that has brought us to God. And it's his work that has enabled us to worship the almighty, all-powerful God of the universe. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. But now in Christ... You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. For through him we we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There's also a struggle with this. Christ is at the center of of our worship, the struggle is self-reliance. How often we rely upon self rather than on Christ, on the gospel, on his cross. Number three, true worship is centered on the word. If you're going to worship the Father, you must worship him in spirit and in truth. Christ reveals God's word to us, but also his written word tells us the truth about God. 
to worship God in truth, we must understand God's word is true and gives us the true knowledge of God. Think about that. That the transcendent God of the universe has put his thoughts into our hands to look into, to dig into each and every day. If we're going to have worship that's centered on the word, we must realize two things. First, it's completely reliable. We can completely trust the word of God. It reveals God's thoughts to us, and in turn, our thoughts then must follow God's thoughts. Turn with me, if you would, to, to, to 2 Peter verse, or chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. And, and this, these, this passage blows my mind every time I read it. I, I don't understand this, yet I know that it is true. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 21. Peter says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when, when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, here's the kicker, the clincher. And we have something more sure. We have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's amazing that Peter saw the glory of Christ in physical form when Christ was transfigured on the mountain. And here he says, I saw that. I was an eyewitness of that. And now I have something more sure. More sure than that. The prophetic word. God's word. That's what our worship must be centered on. We also must see the sanctifying work of the word. As we take in the word, as we read it, as we study it, memorize it, know God's thoughts, not only builds our worship, but it builds our life. Sets us apart. It transforms our hearts. It distinguishes us as worshipers of the one true God. And as setting us apart, as making us worshipers of the one true God, it also sets us apart in the world. People will see your worship and understand that you are completely different than they are. Have you ever thought about your worship of God as a great evangelism tool? Makes you different than the world. Because it sanctifies you. John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Because of the word, you can worship God better and more effectively. Because of the word working in you, you desire to worship God. Do you have a desire to worship God every single day? 
Do you long to lift his name up? Because you know the truth and the truth has set you free from the bondage of sin. No more living that old way. I now pursue Christ and God and his word. What's the struggle with the word being at the center? The struggle is self-authority. See a pattern here in these struggles? First we had a struggle of self-centeredness. Then we had the struggle of self-reliance. Now the struggle of self-authority. We want to be the ones that call all the shots. And as I thought about this, people put so much time and energy and money into trying to have the Bible not be their authority. All you have to do is look on the universities, the, the campuses of the universities in America, right? And you can see the time and the energy and the money that people put in to try to disprove God's word, try to teach something different. God's word must be the authority. We cannot be the authority. Number four, true worship starts in the heart. True worship starts in our heart. Worshiping in spirit and in truth, this spirit is our inward being. All worship of God, any response we give to him, must come from our heart. Your heart shows what you truly believe. Does it show that you worship a living God? True worship must come from a true heart. And a true heart is a regenerated heart. Our heart's nature is a fallen nature. And it needs renewal. It needs to be made new. It needs to be cleansed. A heart needs to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. It needs to be transformed by the Holy Spirit. And it's only when this has happened to a heart that we can truly worship God. Worshiping God is not outward conformity. It's not doing what everybody else does. And we, we often think of church, we think of it as being worship, and it is worship. It's corporate worship. But just because you stand up, sit down, sing the songs, listen to the sermon, listen to the prayers, does not mean that you have worshipped God. You can do all of these things and still have a heart far from Him. Jesus told the Samaritan woman, it would no longer matter if people worshipped on Mount Gerizim, where the Samaritans worshipped, or if they worshipped in Jerusalem, where the Jewish temple was. And sometimes it's easy for us to fall into the trap and say, worship happens at a certain place and a certain time every Sunday or Wednesday. Instead, we need to realize worship happens every day from your heart. God did not want the Israelites' burnt offerings because their heart was not in it. And they were just going through the motions. God wants your heart. And He wants a soft heart. Is your heart soft heart? Is it pliable? Is it transformed by God? I think worshiping every day means giving your heart to God every day. 
saying, God, my heart is yours. I want it to be a soft heart. I don't want to go my own way today. I want to go your way today because your way is the only way. Worship must start in our heart. It might manifest itself in singing or listening to sermons and praying, but it starts in our heart. Matthew 15, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and the scribes. He says to them in verse 7, 8, and 9, You hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as, as doctrines the commandments of men. Worship is openness before God. And what's dangerous is that if worship starts in your heart, that means that God knows your heart. It means that he knows everything that's in it. He knows if your worship is true or if it is false. You can't hide it from God. There's no playing games. You worship what is valuable to you. And it starts with your heart. What is valuable to your heart? Matthew 6, 19-21 Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your heart is, or for, excuse me, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If God is your treasure, if God is precious to you, if God is the most valuable thing in your life, then you will worship Him. And you will give all that you are to Him. It's important then that our heart has turned away from sin to a holy God and have a heart that cries out like David's, Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. What's the struggle? The struggle is self-deception. We can too easily deceive ourselves. Deceive ourselves by saying, Look at all that I've done. I went to church. I, st I stood up. I sat down. I sang the songs. I listened to the sermon. I listened to the prayers. Look at my notes. I have the outline down. I've done everything. All of my boxes are checked. And we've still not worshipped God because our heart was not there. May our hearts not deceive us. But may we continually pierce them with the word of God. May we continually open them up before God and say, God, here is my heart. Cleanse me. Create in me a clean heart. Number five. And lastly, true worship is a lifestyle. And this is what Jesus was saying to the Samaritan woman. True worship was a lifestyle. It affects our inward parts. It affects our outward actions. It doesn't t take place just here or there, but everywhere. Worship isn't designated to a specific time or a specific place. But this does not mean that we can just worship God any old way that we want to. We must still worship Him according to His standards of spirit and truth. 
I think it's important here for, for us to take a side note of this and say, and talk about family worship. First and foremost, does your family worship together? What does that look like in your life? Family worship. Second, do your children learn how to worship God from you? I realize that I am not a father yet and do not, I will be one soon, praise the Lord. And so I do not know everything by experience, but in principle, do your children learn how to worship God from you? Do they see you worship God? If your children only saw you worship, would that be enough to teach them about worship? Not only should you show them, obviously, but you should also tell them, but is your life enough to demonstrate to your child what it means to truly worship God? Does your child truly know what it means to come to church on Sunday and worship God? What about this? How do you prepare your children to worship God when you come to church? What time and effort is put into that so that they're ready when they come to church, when they walk through those doors, that they know what this is all about? That they know it's not just the sitting up and the standing down and the sitting or the standing up, the sitting down, the singing of songs. Look at Deuteronomy six. You'll see there the family worship tells fathers to teach their children when they walk in the way, when they sit sit by the road, all the time, right? Every time. You're you're teaching your children. You're teaching them to worship and fear the Lord, right? That's the culmination of that passage is so that they will go on and they will fear the Lord. So that they will continue the worship that you started in them. That you've taught them. Two qualities of worship being our lifestyle. Worship encompasses all of life. Worship of God is what we are. It's who we are. And it affects every part of us. And this means that we will seek to glorify God in all of life. Whatever you do, do to the glory of God. As a believer, you should not be able to get away from worshiping God. You can't take a vacation from worshiping God. We must realize it should be our tendency to worship God as believers. The problem is, is that we often worship other things and don't guard our hearts. That's what we need, right? We need to guard our hearts so that it is our lifestyle, so that we do it every single day. So that it's not just something that we do on Sunday, but it's something that we do on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday. And understand that the worship that we have together as a body affects the worship that we have on Monday. And the worship that we have on Monday through Saturday affects the worship that we have on Sunday. Our worship of God is not an option. Those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and truth. You must worship God on His terms. And here it says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must, spirit, must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And He is seeking such people. 
that worship him like that, this, that worship him in spirit and in truth. And the implications here of what Christ says is not just that he is seeking those kind of people, but that he is making those kind of people. He is making people who worship him in spirit and in truth. May he make us people who worship in spirit and in truth. What's the struggle? Struggle is self-rule. We want to call the shots. We want to be the ones who are ruling. We want to be able to say when we're going to do what and what we're going to do. And nobody better get in our way of doing that. Worship must be a lifestyle. And something else that I've been thinking about in studying worship is worship, true worship, must never be boring. Now let me qualify that by saying that that does not mean that we are seeking for some emotional excitement. It does not mean that we try to go out and make things exciting. Worshiping God the way that he has instructed us through his word is exciting because we understand the God who we are worshiping. Is there any time that you are bored in worshiping God? You are bored with it. It's interesting, as I also studied this, a certain problem arose as I thought about this. And I thought, the problem, why is it? Why do we struggle to have authentic worship? And the problem is this. Our reality is not real enough and our imagination is not imaginative enough. What does that mean? Our reality is not real enough and our imagination is not imaginative enough imaginative enough. Let's start with the reality. Our reality must be God's reality, not our own reality. His reality is the reality of the Bible. His reality is that He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. His reality is that He is holy. His reality is that He is sovereign. Our reality must be His reality. Our reality is not real enough because oftentimes our reality is focused on myself, me. Does our, does our reality line up with God's reality? Next part, our imagination is not imaginative enough. It does not mean that we are making up what God is like. He has told us what he is like. But because God is who he is, our finite minds cannot understand everything there is to know about God. Let's think about this for a second. Holiness. Who do you know that's holy? Completely holy like God is holy. Who do you know that is all-powerful like God is? Who do you know that is sovereign? If we are going to worship God, our thoughts must be drawn to these depths. And we must use our imagination to think about the truth of God. To imagine a God who is holy. To imagine a God who is omnipresent. To imagine a God who is sovereign. Our reality needs to be real. Our imagination needs to be imaginative. A few points of application. Quickly. Be honest about who you worship. 
Is it God? Is it God some of the time? Or are there idols that need to be crushed? And that's what I love about the Old Testament. Because when there was a time of renewal, they would take the idols and they would crush them. They would say, no more of this foolishness. It was dramatic and it was extreme measure to make sure that the idols were removed. What idols are there in your life that need to be crushed? Does worship give meaning to your life? Do you see who God truly is? And is there a desire there to truly worship God? Does worship start in your heart? Does it start in your heart? Is your heart worshiping God? Is it worshiping God right now, even? Last two points. How real is your reality? There's some things in your reality that need to change. Number five, how imaginative is your imagination? Does your imagination think about our great God and all that he is? One last thing from Acts chapter 16, verse 14 talks about a woman. One who heard us, this is Paul speak, or this is Paul, um, excuse me, this is Luke who's writing this, so he's with Paul at this time. He says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. Throughout the ages, this woman is known as a worshiper of God. It's what has set her apart. We're not told a whole lot about her, but what we are told is enough. She was a worshiper of God. Is that what's going to set us apart? If you could have one thing written down about you, would it be that you were a worshiper of God? Of God Is that enough for believers' fellowship? If people know us as worshipers of God, is that enough for us? Let us be like Lydia, who was set apart, who is known as a worshiper of God. And we're going to go into the Lord's table tonight. And this table is open for all Believers, And it's a time of worship. It's a time of response. Remember our definition. The believer's response of all that they are. This is a time for us to respond to Christ and to the cross and to the sacrifice. And we gather around the table. Let us remember the sacrifice. Let that be the reality of our life. The reality that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth. That he died on the cross in real time. It was a real event. There was real blood that poured from his hands and from his feet and from his back and from his brow. There was real sin that was placed on him as he hung there on the cross. Your sin and my sin. There was real punishment that happened. Punishment that you and I deserved. 
that we should have been given. The cross of Christ is humbling. It humbles us. And it's also glorious. Glorious because it's God's plan. It's God's plan that he would send his son into the world to die for you and I. And not only die, but rise again. And give us eternal life. And give us freedom to release us from the bondage of our sin. So that we might worship. So that we might give him everything that we are. So that we might be a sacrifice. A living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Being able now only to boast in Christ's righteousness. Saying, it's not my righteousness that gets me anywhere. It's Christ's righteousness and his righteousness alone. Everything else that I have in life, everything else that I might gain, I count as loss. I count them as rubbish. I count them as dung. Just let me know Christ. Just let Him be the reality of my life. Just let me worship Him. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. It will be a great day when we are in God's presence forever and worship Him forever. And you as a worshiper of God will do that forever and ever and ever. So let's begin now. Let's worship God now with our lives. And let's worship him as we go to, the, as we take the Lord's table. Let me pray for us.